An organization is big and complex and there are very different people in there. And if you have not learned the skill of leading a diverse team, then unfortunately you, you probably don't have the right skills to be able to lead an organization. I'm Richard Yetzenga. You're listening to Blue Lens on Mike. In this series, we hear from a broad range of experts from business, economics, and further afield, bringing you unique perspectives on a world still grappling with post-COVID reality. Today, I'm joined by Ming Long, Chair of the Diversity Council of Australia and very experienced non-executive director. Um, Ming, maybe I'll start uh, with, I guess, a bit about you, the first Asian woman to lead an AS600 listed entity in Australia. Congratulations, of course. And um, you're particularly vocal on issues of both gender and racial equality. Uh, was there something in particular that set you on this public path? Well, I suppose, I mean, the literature and um, discourse of um, intersection of gender and racial diversity in Australia is pretty limited. Um, I certainly sort of got to it quite late. I was looking for information. There wasn't much to find. And it was only... Um, a person externally who said to me, Ming, do you know you're the first uh, woman of an Asian descent to actually lead um, an ASX 100 entity? And I thought, I had no idea. Um, he, he was the one that actually did the research and, and found that fact out for, for me. Um, but in my experience, it's been hard because for established and, and I suppose expected norms of leadership in Australia, um, to demonstrate difference to that as an asset is actually quite challenging. And I suppose my whole life and my career, I've always felt the pressure to conform, but it's a tightrope of conforming, but still bringing enough of myself to show that difference is an asset and, and is valuable to an organisation. Um, and I suppose the difficulty is that when you're the first and you're trying to make sense of your experiences, for me, it was also when I'd, I'd get a, a question, oh, you know, how much was it was, it was gender and how much was race? And I couldn't answer because I can't separate the two because that's who I am. Um, but what I have learned is that when you add racial diversity to leadership and to, to gender, what it does is it gives an apparent assumption that you are more risky, even more risky than you are just as a woman. And if you're too different to the established leaders that you've seen in the past, um, you start with an assumption that you're less capable. And so it becomes a, a, a double hurdle when you're trying to sort of you know, add the two things together. And in dis decision makers' minds, the riskier you are, the less likely you're considered uh, for leadership roles. And really, the only reason I was able to, to break through what people call the bamboo ceiling was that I was given an opportunity to lead in a crisis in what people would term the glass cliff scenario, where you know, the probability of the organisation surviving is pretty limited. Um, but I proved them wrong and I worked my butt off for five years to save the company and I did. And at that point, it's really hard for people to ignore your capability when you've been able to demonstrate it. Um, and what can I, I can absolutely assure you, it was the fact that I was different. I thought differently. I approached complex problems differently. I had a different perspective 
that was the asset and it wasn't the risk in the middle of a crisis. So you've used, I mean, we'll come back to the risky squared issue, which if I can use that shorthand, which look, I absolutely agree. It's, it's what you see. This, this idea of being different and not different in an additive positive way, but different as in a, in a, in a risky way. Um, and you also spoke about norms of leadership, which, and all of those things are intertwined. You being first, the fact you didn't even know um, actually that you were the first, do you think, did that make it harder or did it, was it easier? Um, you know, did you just, what, what's your perspective? Um, I mean, in the end, it was sort of um, head down the entire time because it really, I wasn't focused on anything other than help my company survive because there were people's jobs at risk and, you know, they had families. There were people who, you know, if I didn't do a really good job, um, they could have lost their family home. And it's just, there was just no way I was going to leave any stone unturned. Like I was not going to die wondering that I put everything into um, saving this company. So the fact that um, I was diverse um, and being appointed as a diverse leader at that point in time, um, I don't think it even came into my mind. If I had known, would I have done anything differently? Probably not. Um, but what I was conscious of, and, and you know, the, the question I was always asked, why the hell would you take um, on being a CFO of a company that's just looking like it's becoming insolvent? Like, you know, are you crazy? Well, I, I, I wasn't crazy. I did have to really think long and hard about it. But it came down to, was there going to be any other point in time where people would put somebody like me into a critical leadership position. And I couldn't come up with an answer whether that would, where that would ever happen. So it was either take it and take it with the knowledge that the, the failure rate was incredibly high um, or you will never know. Or keep, or keep waiting, um, yep. which, is, which is obviously a really unfortunate choice to be to be yes. faced with. Um, uh, the book Against White Feminism, I don't know if you've read it. I read it recently. I found it, I had to digest it for a few months actually to really think about it and use the term, you know, intersection, which it really goes in many ways to the heart of that book. Also the, the, the Diversity Council uh, of which you're now chair, which is fantastic, issued a report on racism at work. It speaks about the, the white racial frame. I mean, in Australia, we might maybe... It, white male racial frame still probably. Um, how do we kind of challenge that? How do we change it? Do you think it's moving? Do you think it's changing? Um, so in Australia, what I would say is that we live in the world which whiteness, um, being Western, Anglo-Celtic is the status quo, and it is. Um, it's seen as normal. And I think subconsciously we also then we also then see that whiteness or you know Western approach or Anglo-Celtic approach as superior to other racial identities um, or customers. Um, you know, for example, people will say to me, "But Ming, I don't see your colour," and I know they mean well, but in that moment, you've just wiped out my racial identity. And it's more comfortable to be able to deal with me 
without colour because you only want to deal with, with me in that status quo. But you know what? I'm never going to be white. I, can't, I just can't. Like I can't, I can't change um, who I am. What I don't want the conversation um, to begin with is that whiteness becomes an accusation. It's an accusing everyone who's white and pointing the finger at you, Richard, you're white. Um, so you will never understand, you know, where I'm coming from. Um, I don't want the conversation to start off with the, with the we're in competition and we're in this fight. What I'd like people to do is to, first of all, we have to personally acknowledge, even me, that I've learnt and have been taught by all the literature from school to the movies and ads we see to the leadership we aspire to, um, that we all need to have um, the humility and, and the need to acknowledge that we, even me, I have a white racial frame as well. And it has driven our decision-making in, in Australia. And we need to start with an acknowledgement that we have not been inclusive um, in our mindset or our approach. And that yes, race has been a factor consciously or, or, or unconsciously in our decision-making. Yes, that we, even I, have been racist. We can at least start to have a nuanced, difficult and, and complex conversations. Um, I would love people to at least start with that humility um, because then we can make progress together. It's not how we're trained, is it? Um, uh, there's an, an interesting author out of the US, Martin Davidson, who talks about the end of diversity as he know it. And he speaks about difference quite a lot. Um, and you know, Martin's approach effectively is to say, we need to become comfortable talking about differences um, if we're really going to harness, um, you know, the full range of human possibility. Um, and your unfortunate anecdote of me, I don't see your colour, which as you say, the speaker may have meant well, but actually does damage in quite a different way. Um, how do we mature the conversation to say, to be able to talk about difference in a way that's not bad? And of course, in a, I moved to Australia um, when I was quite young, was, but, but was born in Thailand. And in Australia in the late 70s and 80s, you talked about differences, but not in a great way, um, in a pretty bad way. And so where we are now is clearly better than where we were then, but we're not to the difference stage of talking about it in a positive and beneficial way. Your thoughts about progress there and some things we can do? Is it just yeah. about talking about it and using the right language? Yeah, I think, I mean, it is, we, there is progress. <laughs> so there is absolutely progress. Just the fact that we are even having this conversation um, is progress. Um, so to be able to move, um, to talk about difference as an asset, um, it's such a, 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 it's a, putting a positive way into, you know, talking about difference. But I also want to acknowledge in that difference, there are nuances. And there are some people that drag other factors into diversity. It almost com commandeer diversity for their own gain. Because we're talking about diversity versus values. And values of the, of the individual do not reconcile with the values of the company. So it doesn't matter how diverse you are, if your values actually don't reconcile with the, with the organisation, then that's actually not diversity. 
Um, and by values, what I'm talking about, I'm not talking Australian values, I'm talking about universal values like integrity. That's universal through the whole planet. Um, I've talked about, is it diversity to put a climate denier on the board? Isn't that a good thing? Because they're bringing different thinking. It is not. So being a diverse individual does not automatically entitle you to, to, to leadership positions. I've seen some people assume that just because they're, they're diverse um, and they're different, um, that they're entitled to be promoted. But that, that's never been the case. Your values must align. And we are not all just one or, or two identities, right? We have multitude of identities for which some may marginalize us, but what does not get acknowledged enough is that we all also have privilege that benefits us. So I do grieve for when people use diversity for their own sort of self, selfish gain and, and not, for, um, not for the greater good. But come back to your question, being that difference being an asset. I'm no longer talking about values now. I'm talking about a person who is going to bring that difference of thinking, but will have some of those universal values that an organisation needs and wants in, in, in their organisation, but also in every team. And of course, we'll, we'll recognise difference quite easily when it comes to experience. Yes. Oh, we don't, we don't have somebody on the board with the right IT experience or the right technical background or the right legal experience. We'll find somebody that has that experience. They'll um, complement the rest of the team. Uh, they'll improve the outcome of the group. Um, when we're hiring people, um, and both you and I and lots of other people are involved in those decisions, my sense is we still struggle to hire because of difference. We'll hire because of um, what it says on the CV. We'll struggle because they might add in a, in a softer way. Um, any suggestions on how to convince people that broadening how we define difference is going to give us better outcomes? Yeah, I mean, I, I usually try and draw it back to, especially if you're talking about a leader who's about to make a decision, um, to self-interest, actually, because... What, what I say to people is that, look, you know, you, you definitely have a blind spot as a leader, right? You, you cannot have every other perspective. You will, you will miss things. You absolutely have blind spots um, as a leader. And when you have a look at your team, if they're very much like you, you are definitely not covering the, the, the scope of issues that potentially your team needs to cover. And if you want to be successful, then you had better hire somebody who's going to make sure that you're not um, missing that blind spot. Because if you're missing it, you're less likely to be successful. But if you hire somebody who's going to help your team be more successful, guess what? You're more likely, actually, to be promoted. And in actual fact, you know, you'll hit a hit hit a, a level in the organization. You may, you know, end up in a in hopefully in a uh, uh, an executive leadership position in, a, in an organisation like ANZ and you will start encountering directors like myself who will ask you, have you led diverse teams in your career? Because if you have not, then why would I ever put you in the CEO? Because an organisation like ANZ is big and complex and there are very different people in there. And if you not, have not learnt to learn the skill of leading a diverse team, 
then unfortunately you, you probably don't have the right skills to be able to lead an organization like ANZ. 100%. Uh, part of that discussion is, uh, I guess, bringing people who look like me along for the ride. Um, and, you know, I can accept certainly that I've been benefited by who I am and what I look like. And it doesn't mean I haven't had to work for what I've had, but it does mean I haven't had to think about who I am, maybe the way Ming, you've had to think about who you are. So in a sense, I've had this kind of slight running downhill advantage. Um, how do I bring people along for the journey who, you know, are the source of the white male racial frame, yeah. um, show that they've been running downhill and it doesn't mean I don't care about them, doesn't mean I don't think they've had to work hard, but for them to recognise the advantage they've had. Yeah, and, and I mean, I know it's scary, right, just to recognise for some men, um, especially white men, to actually step into the conversation because really it's almost like the minute you put a, a foot wrong, um, you feel like you're about to get tarred with the brush that, oh, you're racist or you're um, sexist for the rest of your life. Um, um, so I, I just want to start with the recognition that it is scary, all right, um, but we absolutely need you the conversation because men are agenda too, right? Um, and we, and women cannot do this on their right. We actually need both sides to work together. Um, so, you know, what I encourage people to do, even if you're absolutely terrified, have some courage, right? Start by just listening um, and asking questions. You know, these, so asking questions is actually a lifelong skill, as you probably, as you probably know, because I hear you asking all the time. So, for example, when I'm on the board and I want to ask a really stupid question that maybe I should already know, that's exactly what I say. I say, look, I'm about to ask the stu stupid question. I, I probably should know this, but I really need to ask this. Um, and what you'll find is that people are generally forgiving when you approach a a tricky issue with humility um, and they will they will actually be very accepting is what I normally find um, in that conversation so for example if I'm talking about you know people with a, a disability or, or the, the challenges that um, that First Nations people face I don't have those experiences so I ask a lot of questions and I do know that I do put additional weight and responsibility to them on their shoulders to continually educate me but I educate myself I, I read widely I have um, you know a, an inkling of some of the challenges they face but at least I'm educating myself so that you know in the end if I do put my foot in my mouth um, the easiest thing to do is to do is to acknowledge the mistake acknowledge the fact that you've got something wrong and say hey can 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 I understand that a little a little bit better or can you point me to something I can read um, that might educate me in terms of the perspective that I, I might be missing uh, humility and acknowledging error I like both of their great pieces of advice can I take that stream of conversation just one step further um uh, the report the Diversity Council issued spoke about cultural appropriation um, um, and being something of a snare, I suppose, for people who are keen to show support but might actually just not get that quite right. What, what sort of guidance would you have for people around that issue? It, I mean, it's the same thing. Um, you acknowledge a mistake, you recognise and give respect to those practices that you would like to adopt, right? 
Um, and, you know, being sort of being an ally, one of the things that um, being an ally means that you actually cede your position or the privilege you have to give somebody else the, the space to be able to have voice in, on an issue that in normally they don't have that privilege to be able to, to, to talk about. Um, so sometimes being an ally means that, um, you know, when you're in that situation, cede your position give them the space to be able to voice and help others, not just yourself, understand, um, you know, the mistake that you've made. And we all make mistakes, we're human. Um, but um, that, that humility and courage that we just talked about is um, a lifelong skill I use everywhere because there's a lot of mistakes that I make. Um, I, I don't know everything, even though I'm Chair of Diversity Council of Australia. So um, that's something that I think you can carry along for every role that you have. I'm not, not, I'm not nodding and agreeing with you because I'm sure you make plenty of mistakes, but I can absolutely, as soon as you forget those lessons, they, life has a habit of um, teaching you a difficult um, lesson. You spoke about reading and learning. Um, Anti-racism versus non-racism. The difference, what's embodied in those terms and why is that difference so crucial, do you think? Yeah, you know, one of the things that I suppose when, when I read the um, racism at work piece that Diversity Council put out, um, I had goosebumps because for the first time there was a piece of work that put down holistically all of the nuances that I felt like I, I had experienced, um, that I had seen others like the First Nations people experience. And for the first time, we had a document that put it all down, acknowledged all of the hurt that people feel, um, and also talked about the 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 the, the systemic practices we have that keep that racism in place in organisations. And then also gave us the tools to be able to deal with it. And it's not as if the tools are easy. I completely acknowledge that the tools that we have in the racism at work um, research piece we put out, it's hard. But that for the first time, we have a document that recognises that being non-racist in Australia is no longer enough. That's certainly where we've we've always been, and we we all we've tried to be not racist. Um, but we, what we actually need um, in Australia is to be anti anti racist, and for people to stand up and to be against racism and actively work against racism. Because what we found is that being non racist is quite passive. It doesn't require any courage from you. It just requires you actually, it, it, it requires you not to step into the arena and be part of the conversation or solution. Whereas being actively anti-racist means that you acknowledge that racism exists. And that is the reality of life for so many racially marginalised people in Australia, that there is a recognition that it has been harder for them and we actually have to do something. If that is the society that we want, we talk about Australia being the most successful multicultural country in the world. 
if that is what we want, then we have to be anti-racist. So being anti-racist, again, requires courage. It requires you to step into an area that you will feel uncomfortable. But what I've always found is that when you're in those situations, that is when you evolve as a human. human. That's when you learn and grow and yes you will have battle scars I have lots of battle scars having stepped into those arenas but you will be more than what you've been in the past and you know I always like to see that um, as humans we we can be much more than what we are today Um, and there's a level of pride at the end of your life and then you leave a, a better legacy for the people that you've encountered throughout your life um, and isn't that what we want for ourselves? 100%. And at, at the very least, you know, improving your own social literacy and understanding these issues in much greater depth and trying to, you know, step up, put your head above the parapet on some of the nuance and learn and develop and grow yourself. Um, 100% agree. It does take courage. But the more of us that do it, the better the situation will become and the more it will improve. As an economist, I can't help thinking about the economics in this situation, Ming. Um, Dramatic shortages of labour all over the place, Um, businesses complaining about wage increases. Um, Surely the economic imperative is is there today. Can that, is that making a difference to some of these issues? Are businesses doing better? Are hiring managers doing better just because they need to? You know, there's, there's many times in my life where I have been very grateful for a crisis. So I was very grateful for the global financial crisis because that gave me my big break. <laughs> um, um, and what I've said more recently is, you know, I've heard people bemoan the fact there is a war on talent and it's so hard to find people. It's like, well, I'm actually really glad about that for the, because for the first time it is forcing you to look beyond how you've hired in the past and the status quo we all gravitate to and to force you to broaden your mindset as to what skills and you know the type of people you need to help your organization be more successful the challenge I've actually given um you know some some of the um, leadership teams and the boards I've, I've been on is that in this middle of war for talent my expectation is that you if you are a really good leader I would expect to see an explosion in your diversity statistics. This is the moment for you to actually make the biggest difference in that. And for some of the um, leadership teams I have been working with, um, it it has actually been really heartening because necessity is forcing them to see difference as an asset. So I have one particular leader I've been working with and he's hiring... um, people who aren't in his geographic location. I mean, even there's something as, as simple as that. We've been hiring the same same people so we can all sit together in the same office. Well, you know, COVID's just meant that we don't have to be in the same office. We can work flexibly. They don't have to be in the same same location. And, you know, it's interesting for the first time after, you know, some sort of baby steps, um, you know, the latest person he's hired doesn't even have the, you know, the, the degree of what you would expect in terms of basic training that he would expect in, in, in his area. Because when they tested this individual, they already had all of the, the human traits 
and the values that they already needed in this employee. And you know what? Teaching them the technical skills was the easiest part. The hardest bit was finding someone with that courage, someone who was going to be inquisitive, someone who was going to have the other values and traits that they always wanted in, a, in an employee in the team, not just a technical skill. Belonging has been identified as a key driver of engagement in companies. Um, how do we kind of make belonging broader to encompass people like me, people like you, as we work to try and change some of these? And if we can genuinely broaden everyone's sense of belonging, it, does that have a chance of helping us with this risky squared issue you referred to earlier? Yeah, I, I mean, I love talking about belonging probably more than inclusion um, because it's in those moments in a team or a group or a company where you don't just fit, you aren't just accepted, but you're needed and valued and, and, and respected and appreciated for the best of who you are, but also recognizing that you bring weaknesses and failures and hangups that are, are factors of what makes you a, a valued human, which your, your colleagues can compensate for all of that. And don't we want that safe place where we can we can fly and take risks to try to be more than what we are today. You know, when I, what I always say to people, um, and this applies to anyone, one of the biggest things you can do to help someone to feel like they belong is to be human. I just want you to be human. I don't want you to be any more than what you are. And we have more leaders who are human. <laughs> we have more colleagues who are human. Um, I do think that we would actually get to inclusion much faster. That seems to be sort of the, the, the target of, of what organisations want. But we'd be able to get the, um, the best of all of our colleagues and what they can bring to the table, you know, into an organisation. Yeah, empathetic leadership and empathetic colleagues, um, very fundamental to, to all of that. Um, are you, these, these are not the only issues on which you're vocal on, Ming, and there's a, a, a number of senior leaders in Australia who speak out on, I would say, broader issues. Um, but the Endelman Trust Barometer this year said that employees want their business leaders to speak out on controversial issues they care about. I mean, is that complicated for you? Have you found it difficult? I mean, it is complicated because it's not traditionally the leadership model or expectation we've had of directors or executives of the past, right? Because in the past, you've been told, Stay in your lane. Don't deviate. This is your this is your bag, and that's all you are. But that's not who all I am. You know, there's a lot of things that you are passionate. I hear you talk about Richard, and I want to hear you talk about them because that's who you are, what you care about, and to limit leaders to just their lane is such a loss for the entire country. Um, but it is challenging because there are times when 
you can't say things that you would like to be able to say just because you are working in an organisation. But even then, you can find ways to be able to talk about some of the hard things. I always talk about, you know, in Australia, very good at having G-rated conversations. And we really need to move to MA-type conversations because it's the hard things that will actually help our, our countries, our country or, or um, our organisations um, progress, even from a, from a culture perspective. Um, so I do talk about a lot of things. Um, but I do it in a way where sometimes I'm asking a lot of questions. Sometimes I'm, I'm you know, standing in a position where I'm also challenging myself because I haven't done enough. Have I done enough about, uh, around diversity and inclusion? I have not, absolutely not. Um, you know, am I perfect in DNI? I am not. You know, I care about climate change and I talk about that a lot. Um, have I done enough myself? I have not. So, you know, there's a there's a point where sometimes you feel like you're a, a hypocrite trying to some, trying to raise these things. Um, but I care about them and I have to talk about them because I'm not just, you know, doing it for myself. I'm doing it for the generation of people coming through. And if it makes the next leader, um, it makes it easier for them to talk about things they care about, then, and then I feel like I, I, I've sort of done my job. Um, but what I have also found is that when I have talked about these things, people seem to feel like I'm a little bit more approachable and I get just random people come and talk to you about things. It's not just the, um, you know, I talk about the fact that, you know, I, as a director, you, I come with the ball and change of a title that, oh, my gosh, she's a director on our board and she's scary. Um, actually, I'm not just a human being and I, you know, <laughs> care about certain things that you might care about. And people will come and talk to you. So, so I do think if you actually step into that place, um, you know, approach it with humility, approach it with courage that we talked about, um, you will find that actually you, you start reaching deeper into the organisation than maybe, maybe, you know, we've been able to do so in the past. That's a fantastic way to finish. Maybe I'll close with a, a recitation of a short segment from the Diversity Council report. Um, Ming, uh, it, 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 it suggests racism is a bit like a coin. It marginalises some people, but if that's true, it also needs to benefit others. And I think for those of us on the right side of the coin, the privilege aspect is easier to forget for those of us in that position. So uh, we have a bit of a responsibility to talk about this more actively and to try and make a difference, maybe move the conversation in the MA direction and celebrate and talk about difference in a more transparent way. Ming, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, whether it's being recorded or not. Uh, thank you very much for spending time with ANZ today. No worries. Thanks, Richard. Thanks for joining us on Blue Lens on Mike. You can hear more by following us on SoundCloud and finding me on Twitter. This podcast is intended as thought leadership material. It is not published with the intention of providing any direct or indirect recommendations or to influence any person to make a decision in relation to any financial product or class of financial products. It is general in nature and does not take account of the circumstances of any individual or class of individuals. For further information, please refer to the full disclaimer at institutional.anz.com.